from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Taliba's son. Taliba's history includes the Black Panther movement and Stokely Carmichael's All African People's Revolutionary Party. Today, Taliba is an educator. She talks about how being an educator helped her quickly get the Baha'i principle of progressive revelation. She also describes how she integrates the Baha'i principle independent investigation of truth in her classroom. I started the interview by asking Taliba where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Chicago and I lived in Chicago until I was 10 years old. And then in 1963, when I was 10, we moved to Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is actually a place where I consider my hometown. I stayed in Los Angeles until I went away to school, which was in 1972. I'll be 60 next year. I grew up in what people now unlovingly refer to as South Central, but I really didn't grow up in South Central. I actually grew up in Windsor Hills and the Baldwin Hills area, which was a pretty bourgeois African-American community, still remains so, but I was bused to Crenshaw High School. So I've always had this dual personality, um, being bourgeois and also being street. So that's what it was like growing up in L.A. I received a full scholarship. Uh, I'm in a, what they call an affirmative action baby back in the 70s. Idaho State University didn't have any black students, and so they were losing federal funding. So they, re- they were re- recruiting us poor little African-American culturally deprived folks from inner city L.A. Well, I'm not from inner city L.A. and I'm not culturally deprived and poor, but they didn't know that. So I went to school. I did my undergraduate work at Idaho State University. And that's actually in Pocatello, Idaho, where I found out about the Baha'i faith. So tell me your story about finding the Baha'i faith. I was studying a lot of different philosophies and religion at the time. I was raised Lutheran, and at age, I think I was 16, almost got kicked out of the Lutheran church for having what was considered a politically infused Christmas play. The Christmas play was based on hair, the play hair. Mm -hmm. And there were different social scenarios and I had interracial cup. Everything was in pantomime. It was, it was our youth group. And so there was a scene in pantomime where there was an interracial group and there were people who were displeasing, you know, and, and were talking and gossiping and backbiting. And then between each vignette was a picture of Jesus Christ. My mother used to have this very large picture of Jesus Christ. So during that time, this is like mm, late 60s. I had all these vignettes. There was peace, love. There was police brutality. And in between these vignettes was a picture of Jesus Christ going across the stage. 
And then at the end, um, I had black dolls depicting the nativity. And the church became very upset. And they approached my mother. And I was very upset because I thought, you know, why didn't they understand the social significance of this play? And that if we say that we're Christians, then, you know, how do we address these issues that were happening during this time? I think I was a panther at the time, too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was a Black Panther at the time. And my mother said something very prophetic. She said, don't be upset because these people would not recognize Jesus Christ if he were to return today. So I moved to Idaho and became aware of the group Sills and Crofts, went to one of their concerts. In the meantime, I'm studying Buddhism and Islam. When I was introduced to the faith through an inspiration, we'll leave it at that. When I contacted the Baha'is, I felt like, wow, other people believe the same way that I believe in. I had issues with race unity. And there were some of the social principles and the laws that I didn't immediately adopt. But I grew into once I understood the protection that, you know, these laws are not punishment. You know, like when you're a Christian, you know, you have to, you know, have confession. And, you know, if you do wrong, you go take it to the pastor or the priest or what have you. You know, the Baha'i faith teaches that we're each individually responsible for our spiritual development and also to assist and be of service to the community. So that concept of being personally involved in and actively participating in your transformation uh, was very attractive to me because I was anti-establishment already, very intelligent, and I knew what they were telling me in the church wasn't the whole story. So I declared maybe two weeks after learning about the Baha'i faith. And my daughter always teases me and she said, Mom, you thought Baha'u'llah was the Dalai Lama. And that's true. (laughs) Didn't quite understand the complexity and the depth of the faith. And to be honest with you, when I'm uncomfortable when people say, how long have you been a Baha'i? always say I'm on my journey and I've been on my journey for 38 years, but I'm nowhere near perfect. I didn't come into the faith perfect. And I'm still to this day suffering from slow healing, grievous wounds, but I'm committed to the process, you know, raise my children in the faith. They made their own decisions to have one hasn't. And I live my life as a Baha'i, my point of reference is Baha'i, my world view is Baha'i. Taliba, first of all, tell me how you got the name Taliba. Well, again, I'm one of those hippies, panther, political, you know, social activist and all that stuff. I've always wanted to change my name because this is also during the time of Malcolm X and black Muslims were ridding themselves of their slave name. And so Malcolm X, the X represents to eradicate, eliminate the slave name. He was Malcolm Little. So I grew up in that, under that philosophy. I also grew up knowing a lot of people who practice Yoruba. A lot of African-Americans during that time were changing their name as a political statement. My father lived in Saudi Arabia for 12 years. 
he worked with the airlines, with Saudia Airlines, during the time I was in college. And I fell in love with Islam. I fell in love with Arabic. And I was opening up in a book, and I was actually looking at the name Tahare and trying to understand what the meaning of Tahare means. And I found Talaba underneath, meaning seeker of knowledge. And I liked it, and I liked the way that my Saudi boyfriend at the time said it. It just rolled off his tongue. And being an educator, I liked it. And then Sun came from, it was a young man that I was dating, and he wrote a poem about me. And the poem was called Sun. And the characteristics in the poem that described me, I thought, wow, that's pretty good. But then I changed the definition of Sun to mean the reflector of the light of God. So I legally went to court in 77 and changed my name. It's a nice name. I like it. Thank you. Um, Changes my aura. <laughs> <laughs> so, Taliba, tell me about your involvement in the Black Panther movement. Well, I was like a lot of young African Americans at that time looking for social justice. This is during the time of the Civil Rights Movement. My family lived in Athens, Alabama, and I experienced Jim Crow, which just made me really mad. And the Panthers at the time was what was available to us as a movement, an active movement, to make some changes in society. Um, what I liked about the Panther was the self-determination and being in control of one's destiny. I got out of the Panthers and I actually followed Stokely Carmichael when he left the Panthers and he started a party called the All African People's Revolutionary Party. And I was actually more active with them than I was with the Panthers because the Panthers actually was a very paternalistic, very male oriented. And then it became centered around personalities and then the drugs entered into it. But what a lot of people don't know, I mean, they have this stereotype of Panthers and they see, you know, Huey Newton sitting on this peacock chair with a, with a rifle. What people don't realize is the Panthers started the first freedom schools, which I guess we could say is a precursor to charter schools. The Panthers were the ones who started the free breakfast program, which we now have in all schools. And those of us who survived and made it and didn't go to jail were all now educators and politicians. And there's a lot of us in the Baha'i faith. There's tons of us in the Baha'i faith. You know, we were just young intellectuals looking for an answer to social justice. And so I now say that I am no longer a political revolutionary I consider myself a spiritual revolutionary. So that same sense of urgency is what I brought into the faith. You said that at some point you, I don't know how to accurately describe it, but you said that some of the laws of the Baha'i faith you struggled with, and I was kind of wanting to know what your thinking was or why was it that you hung in there with the Baha'i faith knowing that there were things about it that didn't initially resonate with you as far as the laws? Um, well, I guess because from the very beginning, I was confirmed in the spiritual aspect of the faith. I got the spiritual 
you know, the spiritual aspects, the progressive revelation, the station of Baha'u'llah, once I came to understand it, definitely about world unity. Race unity was an issue with me. Understand, you know, getting over those slow healing, grievous wounds and being, you know, mistrustful and suspicious. But this is also during the time that there was free love, drugs, alcohol, and I was 21 and was very much part of that scene too. And I didn't understand until I had several, several incidences, what difference does it make? Because growing up in the Christian church and growing up with an alcoholic mother who was extremely religious, I didn't see what your lifestyle had to do with your religion. I didn't see, I didn't understand, you know, the issue about alcohol, drinking and drugs, where everybody was saying that the drugs was illegal. Chastity, I was living with a guy at the time. All those things were things that I struggled with, but they were also tests. They were the fire that polished this diamond in the rough. And I had an incident I will be honest with you where I was, I was smoking weed. I was at a party and I was smoking weed, which I was usually doing. And I was behind and Idaho state being the small community that it is. And even smaller, the African-American community, one of my friends asked me to explain to them the administrative order, particularly the universal house of justice. And I was too high to answer him. And that was it. Mm. I didn't need any more lessons about that. You know, some of the other things I, I grew into, and that's why I say, you know, I'm I'm very reluctant to say I'm a Baha'i, you know, because I'm nowhere near where I would would love to be. But it's a daily struggle. It's very active. It's not a passive thing. It's not you go to church and you say confession and you have the holy water. My, my mother did that all the time. Sunday, she was good, you know. But Sunday from four o'clock on, all hell broke loose. And then come Sunday morning, she was holy again. And she broke bread and she drank wine. And I used to think, oh, my God, what a hypocrite. You know, (laughs) but then in the same sense, when I was put to the test, I, I was a hypocrite. And I had to reflect on that. I was like, I'm not a hypocrite. So if I say I'm all about something, you know, anything that I'm part of, I'm going to be all about that. But it took growth. You know, the whole active personal spiritual transformation does really literally transform your life. I mean, we're, we're raised in this society and we, we were affected by this society and we, we obviously have the ills of this society and being conscious and awake and not asleep. It's yeah. a lifelong journey. You know? So you'd mentioned that you are very attractive to this concept of progressive revelation in the Baha'i faith. I was wondering if you could describe what that concept is. Well, on a personal level, as I said, I was reading Buddhism, and I was reading Islam, and I was learning about different philosophies. I think I dabbled a little bit in Hinduism. I may have read the Bhagavad Gita. And I found nothing in conflict. There was nothing in conflict. Um, I was very attracted to the Quran. This is the first time I heard God being spoken in the first person. And I'm an educator. And I know that, you know, by the time a student got to me, you know, I taught high school. And I knew by the time they got to me, they had had many teachers before. 
And I appreciate the teachers that they had before because they were not able to write essays if they hadn't had the kindergarten teacher that taught them their ABCs. So I understood that progressive learning process. And from reading the holy books and being attracted to them and, and understanding the true station and the purpose of the prophets, that God does not leave us alone without guidance, I just totally got it. That, that was a no-brainer for me. It was a no-brainer. And I knew Christianity different than what was being said and told to me in the church. For instance, I remember as a child having to ask the pastor for permission to go to my friend's church. And I couldn't understand that. I was like, why would I have to ask you permission to go to another Christian church? And his response was, well, they're not our kind of Christians. I'm like, well, how many kind of Christians are there? <laughs> you know, so I was always very analytical and the faith was just logical to me. And I was instantly, instantly attracted to the history of the faith, you know, and our, our closeness to Islam. And it's the same as, you know, Christianity and its close, closeness to Judaism, which a lot of people don't talk or, or tend, tend to ignore. So I got it. That was a no-brainer for me. You know, I never questioned it. In fact, my mother, I remember my mother saying to me when I told her I was Baha'i, she said, well, what does that do for you and your belief in Jesus Christ? And I said, well, I've come to understand the station and, and purpose of Jesus Christ even more. And her response was, okay, as long as you still believe in Jesus Christ, I guess it's okay. What still is a struggle for me is living in a racist society. That will always be a struggle for me. But my response to it is very different than it was 38 years ago. Explain how the faith has influenced your response to that. Well, I was very angry. You know, I was a panther and all all African People's Revolutionary Party, AAPRP it was called. And I hung out with people like Stokely Carmichael. And, you know, as I said, I, I you know, just when I went on vacation to the South to visit my family, I, I just thought Jim Crow was ridiculous. You know, I'm a social scientist. I taught history. And I just like, I just don't understand the subjugation and oppression of masses of people. Whether you do it behind religion, saying only through Christ can you be saved and only this church got the message, or whether you said only blacks and only whites really understand. I just never got that, you know. And I remember, and I think my mother was real influential in that because when they started categorizing people by race, my mother was really upset and she would want to check off the box human. And she used to say that all the time. Why can't I just check off? human. But being raised in, in South Central LA, I had a real sense of myself. And I and we had visiting teachers at my high school, such as Ron Karinga and Angela Davis. So I had a real sense of myself, but that was not tested until I went to Idaho. And I always say that I became a Baha'i in Idaho. I learned about the Baha'i faith in Idaho because it saved my life and somebody else's life. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was, you know, I was very confrontational, you know, and I'm still confrontational. I'm still, let's say, assertive, kindly, with kindness. Same message, but with the spiritual understanding that we're all one family. 
And the more I got to really know and understand that concept, not just spiritually, but scientifically. I mean, I was in Tanzania and I, I saw Lucy, the original mother. I saw her bones and everything. And, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to give up being logical and smart. I don't have to, any questions that I have is encouraged. You know, the whole independent investigation of truth, which I do now, I, I teach that way. In fact, I'll have to tell you a little story. I'm a history teacher and I would tell my students this is in the high school level. I I now teach at the university level, but I used to tell my students after giving them a lecture for 45 minutes and putting notes and stuff on the board. And I used to tell my students, I said, everything I just told you is a lie. And they would look at me say, Oh my God, there she goes again. (laughs) And I said, so your homework tonight, shall you accept it? And it's not mission impossible is to find out the truth. And when you come back, you have to tell me whose truth it is that you're telling me. So it's, you know, about the critical analysis about how do you know what you know is true? And just recently, the director at the university where I teach at university, she said, you know, you're very revolutionary. And I'm like, oh, my God, here we go. (laughs) I know what that means, cold. (laughs) But just because I'm saying, how do you know what you know is the truth? Have you ever questioned it? Or were you conditioned to believe? And so that's that's some of that pantherness coming in or that social activism coming in and now saying, you know, how do you define what's true? And maybe I can offer you another truth and you could chew on it for a while. I really don't care what you think about it, but I'm just offering you another truth that you can put in your in your bag of tricks and then you make the decision. So, yeah, it, it just fits into who I am as a person. I'm, I'm, you know, just, and I'm not saying that the faith was created for me, but it makes sense. It's very logical at this point, 38 years later, there's very little that I question. And I've gotten to the point now, well, I wouldn't say gotten to the point of, but I understand spiritual acquiescence. I still go down kicking and screaming sometime, but I know that trust in God and recognizing that it's all about God's will. We do have free will, but the bottom line is God's will. He has a plan and a purpose. I submit to Islam means, you know, admit to be submissive. And so I submit to it. So it sounds like you've done some traveling. I mean, you said you mentioned Tanzania and I, and I assume you're in Nicaragua now. Nicaragua. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I, I live in Nicaragua now. Um, I'm here home for the summer. And you want to know where I've been, all the countries? Because to me, I haven't traveled as much as my kids do. But some people think, oh, my God. that's Because I think, you know, uh, Americans, we have this real um, fear about um, the unknown. And I find it exciting. I love the unknown. I love challenging myself and putting myself in unfamiliar situations. And because my father worked for the airlines all my life, I'm used to traveling. So the places that I've lived is Saudi Arabia, in and out of Saudi Arabia, because I was in college at the time my father was there. I lived in Belize for three years. I lived in Jamaica for three years. That's where I met my kid's father. I was married and had three children with him. I have traveled to Tanzania on a Fulbright, South Africa and Namibia as part of 
what's called sister to sister social economic development project back in the days when it was new concept we were trying to figure out what that looked like oh zanzibar oh, zanzibar when i was in tanzania and most recently now that my children are grown i have returned back to central america and i was in costa rica where i thought i was going to stay but was invited to go to nicaragua and i've just been there 6 months i've just been there 6 months and right now currently i'm teaching at the university and i also provide a community service in the community where i teach adult literacy at the bahai center in bluefields nicaragua i live with the afro caribbean people of nicaragua because i speak creole because i lived in belize in jamaica my kids being jamaican and so i i have an affinity to the afro caribbean culture and that's where i want to retire somewhere in central america and be of service at the same time it's what i call my life insurance plan <laughs> <laughs> so were you in saudi arabia when you were a bahai yes yes that was that was interesting yeah relatively new bahai too yeah and this was during the um what was it called the hostage situation okay was it the iran hostage situation when People jimmy carter were, was in, was president or ronald reagan ronald reagan okay yeah so there were restrictions and i was engaged to a saudi that was a, that's another story and again i had, <laughs> i really had to um I don't want to say make a choice. It's not about making a choice, but I really had to trust, trust that the Baha'i faith was right. And so therefore I had to be obedient. So when I was in uh, Saudi Arabia, I couldn't wear any jewelry. I couldn't take any prayer books and I could not contact the Baha'is while I was there. And I was engaged to a Sunni Muslim. And um, yeah, that was a very interesting time in my life. <laughs> now, People may know that there's some animosity toward the Baha'i faith from certain parts of Islam. And I guess my first question is, um, how did your fiancé feel about the fact that you were a Baha'i? It didn't become an issue until we were planning to get married. And as westernized as he was tradition and culture um, trumped <laughs> his westernization and it became an issue. So when we didn't get parental consent, then I started paying attention to his plans for us. For instance, that I had to convert. And while I was in Saudi, I did, I did cover myself because it was a protection and I could actually, you know, walk in the marketplace and not be bothered. Um, no one paid attention to me. But if I was in Western clothes, I was. But I want to talk to you about, about this animosity that you're talking about, because I have never experienced such animosity as I'm experiencing now among Protestant Christians. I never experienced what I'm experiencing now that I had any time I'm with Muslims. And I have because because I've studied Islam and, and I come out of the Black Panther, Black Muslims, Nation of Islam, you know, Malcolm X tradition. I haven't had any problem with African-American Muslims. And 
I would say maybe once or twice have I ever been treated with disdain by a Middle Eastern Muslim. I have been treated with more bias, prejudice, and ill feelings among Protestant Christians, especially where I am now, than I ever have in my whole entire life. So I know that, you know, right now there's there's Baha'is that are that are persecuted and in prison and, and has been part of the history. And when I was in South Africa, I visited the, the monument to the three martyrs who were killed for standing up for race unity and refused to divide themselves according to black and white. So I really I really to be honest with you. I don't have issues with people being Muslim, but I have issues of people being bliss in their ignorance. And because of that ignorance and their inability or unwillingness or unmotivated to look at their own mindset and how that mindset was created and is continued to be controlled. I have more problems with that, no matter how it shows up with whom um, whether it's religious or nationality or ethnically or gender, you know, so I, I would I would never say that I've experienced more bias and prejudice from Muslims. I've experienced more bias and prejudice and fear from Christian than I've ever experienced, including my own family. Yeah. I mean, I was I was not allowed to pray at my father's funeral. I was not allowed to even touch my stepmother's ashes. So I don't have a problem with Muslims. It's, <laughs> right. it's not Muslims who have hurt me. It's, it's those who have been closest to me that hurt me. And that hurts a lot. Yeah, because it's your family. Right. Whether it's your, your real family, your immediate family, your extended family, which has hurt me to the core more than ever. You know, here I am talking about, you know, all black folks, you know, let's get together, you know, against, you know, the whites, you know, that that was my history. And now I'm experiencing such nationalism and religious fanaticism. And I'm like, whoa, and this is among black people and been experiencing that since I was in Belize. You know, I, I tell you, I went to Belize and I'm like, OK, I'm black, I'm down, you know, but I'm American <laughs> and I belong to this weird cult. <laughs> So that's where I've really had to, like, really, again, I have to think about my response to this. And I'm currently really assessing my role in Nicaragua because it's pretty deep, especially when you are living in a society among people who don't even know that they're being controlled, that their thinking, their way of life is controlled by an outside force, that they are not actively participating in their own self-determination or even fearful and don't even want to talk about independent investigation of truth. And that, that to me is more scarier than any, anyone else. Yeah. Especially in the culture that you're living in, you have to really be delicate about how, how and when you present the Baha'i faith to folks. I haven't yet. Yeah. I haven't. Right. I'm just forming trusting relationships. I just want them to get to know me and to like me. And my students love me. And I have not told them I'm Baha'i. And I have 40 students that come to the Baha'i Center that do adult literacy. And I'm not pushing, which is what they're used to. This is definitely service. And it's definitely teaching by example. It's definitely deeds, not words. 
a couple of them have asked me, Miss, why are you like the way that you are? And I know when I go back, I will make an assessment as to when it's time. Because, you know, Baha'u'llah says, not everything a man knows is not necessarily timely. It's not timely, it's not appropriate, nor can the receiver digest it. That's a really bad paraphrase. <laughs> well, we get the gist of it. Yeah, but you know, as a teacher, I was just discussing with another teacher friend of mine. As a teacher, we, we have a goal, we have an objective, we write lesson plans. But that can change once we walk into the classroom. Once you find out, once you take time to assess the capacity of your students... Your goal and objectives may not change, but definitely your methodology has to change. And so that's where I am right now. I'm trying. I'm right now at this point, like trying to understand. I live in a communist country. I live among people who have been oppressed, depressed, regressed, downtrodden. You name it. They have no sense of self. Very controlled by government, by religion. My director said I've caused a revolution just because I'm encouraging my students to think. One of my students caught me on the street and says, Miss, Miss, you provoke me. And I looked at her and I'm like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? (laughs) She said, well, I guess it's good. But it's not. It can be dangerous. And I'm not even doing anything political. So, I mean, you just have to be aware of your environment, where you are, who you're dealing with, what their point of reference is. And, you know, you have to... Be there, you know, be there. That's why we don't have missionaries. We don't go in and saying, you know, follow me and I'll set you free. You know, my approach is like, who are you? Let me hang out with you. You know, I'm going to go to your funerals, your birthday parties, your weddings. I'll come over for dinner and just hang. And you may ask me how come and I may say why. And where I am right now here in Newark, um, I've been here in Newark for 12 years And it took, I would say, seven of those 12 years before we actively, like, wow, like really started to really come out. But it took seven years of building relationships and and being part of the community. Now everybody knows. They're like, oh, now I understand. But it's not one of these Bible toten or katabiakdas toten come to me, only through me shall you be saved kind of thing. You really, that's one thing I really love about the faith. And when you understand what one family means, and, and, you know, we talk about diversity and, you know, unity, but people don't understand unity literally is not a black and white thing. Because I live in a black society and I've been in black societies and I ain't got nothing in common with them. And I used to say, I I have more in common with a white American male than I did with my black Jamaican husband. So there's all kinds of complexities and levels that we have to transcend before we can truly have unity. And I'm just open to that. And I'm, I'm in learning mode. I'm always in learning mode. I don't think that I go into anywhere and tell people how to be. I want them to tell me how to be. Now, you mentioned Newark. I'm in Newark, New Jersey right now. Twelve years ago, um, Newark, New Jersey was a target goal area. Um, So they asked for Homefront Pioneers to come here in 2000. And nine of us have been here. And Newark, New Jersey is now a learning center as designated by the Universal House of Justice. Now, what does that mean? 
That means that we have made a lot of mistakes. And we have a lot of victories as a result of those mistakes. And to prevent other people from making those mistakes, they come and hang out with us. It's actually quite an honor, but that took blood, sweat, and tears, you know, because um, Baha'i culture continues to evolve, too. And we don't do things like we used to do. Like, to be honest with you, when I became a Baha'i in the 70s, we are very insulated, which I've always had a problem with, you know, especially coming out of the political ideologies that I did. And now this outward focus, community outreach, you know, Baha'i children's class doesn't mean just for Baha'is, you know. When we were in South Africa, there were nine of us women and um, we were being advertised as this singing, this gospel singing group. And we used to talk about the pupil of the eye and the nobility of people of African descent, which in 1995 was very political. Well, in the process of having one of our concerts, because to be honest with you, there was very little relationship building. We met the wife of Stephen Biku. Stephen Biku was a contemporary of Nelson Mandela, and he was a member of the ANC. Stephen Biku's wife was at one of our concerts, and she came to us, and she was very impressed and affected by this, we'd, we would put the writings, you know, in between gospel singing. And so she took our phone numbers and said, where are you guys going to be? And we were, we were staying at a Persian's home. And the, the Persians one night had this wonderful, beautiful dinner. And it reminds me of the story of Abdul Baha in Washington, D.C., when the Persian, um, Persian delegations had this wonderful banquet. Well, we had the same banquet in, in South Africa, in Transkai, actually. It was in the Transkai area. Anyway, the Persians created this wonderful spread, as they always do. And every time the Persians would take us someplace, we were always in the back talking to the servants. But we would always, like, find our way to the kitchen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but in this one particular incident, there was this big dinner held in our honor, and we got a phone call. And it was the wife of Stephen Biko. And she asked us to come to her tin-roof lean-to for a barbecue. She wanted to honor us in her home. Mm. And we went to the Persians and we said, "Mm, we're out. Thank you. We're gone. Really, some of them were insulted, but one of them said, but that's the reason why you came here. Go and go with my blessings. Do you need a ride? I mean, that's that's like the faith right there. You know, that's what it's about. That's what Abdul Baha did. He moved all the placemats and, and, the, and the name tags and the the gold and embossed whatever and said, I'm not eating to Lewis Gregory sit next to me. I hope that that's where we are evolving to as a world community. Yeah, I hope so, too. So how often do you get to Nicaragua? Well, I'm trying to get there now. (laughs) (laughs) I had to come home. I had family business to take care of. And I have a legal battle right now to get my retirement released. I hope to be out of here by the end of July. I've been here too long. But this legal battle with my ex-employer is taking longer than I wish. But I'm an American by birth and obviously American by perception and worldview. 
but I have no intentions of burying my bone, bones in this body, God willing, inshallah. I always tease people. I say I want to be reading Cat in the Hat to some kids under a coconut tree and just kill off and die there. And they're like, oh, how traumatic that would be for the kids. I said, okay, well, maybe I won't be reading to them, but it <laughs> Things are so much more meaningful and purposeful when you're challenged or worldview is challenged. And when they say when in Rome, do as Romans do. I mean, that's really deep. If you really understand, like recently, I just cut off all my hair and my hair was down my back because I came to the understanding that I did not have the right to have this sense of entitlement and take all the resources from away from my host family and that resource being water. And I just said, okay, so I don't get to go to the beauty shop and have my hair done. I had dreadlocks. And, you know, just like this whole sense of entitlement. When I saw my host mother, she had two buckets of water. She's climbing down a hill, bringing two buckets of water to the house. One of them being for me Mm. and the other one being for the whole entire family. And that was like an aha moment for me. And I'm like, you know, I don't get to do this. I don't get to do this. And it's those kind of experiences that bring out, I think, our real true humanity. I just hope that I I am blessed to live my life the next however years God gives me in service. So you're thinking for now, uh, Nicaragua is where you want to be? For now, well, I have an opportunity to go to Panama in 2013. Part of this program that's kind of like Peace Corps for Teachers. And what I really want to do is I want to learn what Baha'i education looks like. Because to be honest with you, I would like to either start or be part of the process of creating more schools, especially in communities where the education is so poor. Where I live right now, they're illiterate in both languages, in both Creole, they speak Creole, which is a dialect of English and Spanish. And they're functionally illiterate in both because of the poor school system, which is one of the reasons why I, I offer adult literacy. But I really want to be part of the educational process, where whether it is creating a school or learning more about Fondeac and what they're doing in Colombia or working with OSED and the World Center. I don't know how God wants to use me, but I've been an educator for th- 30 years, and I just hope the faith can use that mm. <laughs> with you know, just to pose up against the Baha'i race. I don't know what it's going to look like. So any closing words before we conclude the interview? Well, since this is for people who are possibly on their spiritual journey, the only thing that I would say is trust the process. And anyone that I come into contact with and they, you know, trying to decide whether they should be a Baha'i or not, to me it's about the process declaring as a Baha'i is not the end product. It just starts the journey. Have courage. If you have courage to be part of that journey and you have a sense of belongingness to others who are part of that journey, I say, welcome. Get ready for the ride because it's going to be the most wonderful and the scariest ride you've ever been on in your life. Well, Taliban, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Taliban's son an educator who doesn't let the boundaries of her country keep her from serving humanity through education. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, 
or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
bless the Lord at all times. In the presence of this holiness, spirits are filled. When the praises go up, the blessings will come down. So with our praises, we will dance and sing and let you know our God is real. is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.